Welcome to Lessons in Leadership. I'm Steve Adubato. That is Mary Gamba. You catch us every week on AM 970 Radio in New York, every Sunday. Also on their website. And where's the other place they can find us? All over the place. So uh, you could find our podcast at Apple Podcast and Google Play. Also on our website, stand-deliver.com, njbia.org. ROI. As well as ROI. What about the Fios On Demand? I'm just I know. This you. is great. So if you are a Fios subscriber, like you and I both are, you can actually find us on Fios On on demand as well. So Brian, just all the over place the place. We said we are Spotify. Well, yeah, some of the other outlets like Spotify and, and SoundCloud, and we're showing up there now too. Yeah. And by the way, we're coming to you from East Main Media Studios in beautiful Little Falls, New Jersey, right, Brian? Yeah. What I said total. Not total. Right? <laughs> I think that's near, right? Absolutely. I would like to thank our sponsors too. Before we just keep. Oh, you better because I'm then there's do no that. cash. I know, absolutely. Yep, no money, no mission. Bob Feinberg so, knows about that. We'll be talking about that in a minute. Go absolutely. Ahead. So we have uh, New Jersey Resources, our good friends there, Prager Metis, um, one of the our, great accounting firms. Yep, absolutely. Our friends over at Investors Bank. So we've got a, a ton of great sponsors making this show possible. And by the way, investors got Bob's interest right away. Uh, let's introduce Bob Feinberg, who is the founder and chairman of the board at Montclair Film, a great organization we'll be talking about, and also vice president, general counsel and secretary, WNET, New York Public Media, and there would not be a public television operation in New Jersey, otherwise known as NJTV, if it were not for Bob and Neil Shapiro and a group of people who made that happen in July of 2011. Good to see you, my friend. Good to be here, Steve. Talking leadership, right? Do you separate your view of leadership when you are when you created with a group of terrific folks Montclair Film versus any other kind of leadership in the corporate world which you know very well is there a difference between leadership and creating building developing and promoting Montclair Film versus any other kind of leadership I think there's definitely a different kind of leadership when you're starting something from the ground up, something that wasn't there before. By the way, I didn't give you a chance to describe what Montclair Film is. So Montclair Film is a, uh, a year-round nonprofit based in Montclair, New Jersey, that produces an annual film festival in May of every year that's sort of our keystone event, but is really a year-round film education and entertainment uh, nonprofit headquartered in the Investors Bank <laughs> Film and Media Center. Thank you, Kevin. Gift of the bank. Thank you, Kevin Cummings. Kevin, Kevin Cummings. That has grown. Uh, we started it almost 10 years ago. We're going to celebrate our 10th anniversary next year, uh, the year after. It's going to be a big deal. That'll be a big deal. But, it, you know, it was something that we started really from scratch. And I think that's a little different than, you know, leading, for example, the legal function at WNET, an organization that's been around for 60 years. And I'm you know, I'm, I'm maintaining the legacy, hopefully improving on it. But it's a, they're different exercises, I think. You, you know, but I am curious about this because I, as you know, I come from a background where my dad created, my father created a not-for-profit, yes. um, actually celebrating, my sister was in here talking about this earlier, uh, the 50th anniversary really? of the Ward Center, a significant social service organization Very based in Newark. Yeah. I remember sitting with Bob, you and how can remember this, me, you, and our good friend John Savidio, general manager over at NJTV, we're sitting in Egan's restaurant. And Bob's like, I got an idea. And again, obviously you didn't do it alone, but you had an idea. What's the connection between how you had to, quote, sell the idea, get others on board, and leadership? Well, there's a certain energy that's required, at least from the way I did this, the way I do things. I mean, I am frequently talking about a sense of urgency. What does that mean? I like that phrase, too. We may not mean the same thing. Yeah, well, right? for me, it, it really is 
just a consistency and a stick-to-itiveness and a, to an extent a certain degree of a pain in the neck. You're just sort of on it constantly in a way that old-fashioned expression, you're like the first person in in the morning and the last person to leave at the end of the night. And I think that there's usually, in my experience, in a successful endeavor, for-profit, not-for-profit, large, small, there's always somebody, at least one person like that. And for the Montclair, originally the Montclair Film Festival, now Montclair Film, I was that person at the beginning. You're right. You did a lot of stuff. I did a lot of stuff, none of it alone. But there was a while when, not exclusively, but most days I woke up in the morning thinking about Montclair Film and went to bed at night thinking about it and continued just to sort of press people. And you deserve more credit than you're giving yourself because you were a founding director of Montclair Film and a tremendous help. And, And as much as I thank Kevin Cummings and Investors Bank for their tremendous support, you're the person who introduced me to Kevin Cummings. And it was Kevin Cummings who said, I want to know more about them because I'm excited about what they're doing. If Kevin Cummings didn't buy into it, investors, there's nothing I could have said that would have made a difference. But what I'm curious about is in almost the 10 years since you founded this organization, and by the way, I let folks know some of the other important board members. Well, a number of very important board members. So Evie Colbert is the president of the board, and Evie has been really a tremendous board member. I mean, many people know her as as Stephen Colbert's wife, and that's certainly true. But She's she terrific is, leader in her own right. She is a terrific leader in her own right. That is true. She is a diligent worker who's a tremendous supporter. People who've been with us from the very beginning, people like Rose Calley, yes. um, who's been so instrumental in the growth of Montclair State University, people largely from the Montclair area, but tremendous supporters really from every walk of but life. What I'm curious about is almost 10 years in, how much has your leadership style as the founder and chair of Montclair Film changed? Because when I was at, and Mary and I were just talking about this, we're taping at the end of 2019, even though this will be heard and seen after that, uh, literally just last Saturday as we're doing this program, there was an extraordinary event at New Jersey Performing Arts Center in which once again, Stephen Colbert was doing this compelling, entertaining, funny, enlightening interview with Julie Louis-Dreyfus. Yes. That being said, thousands of people there at NJPAC. Bob is there, but Bob's not, I don't know, maybe he was running it behind the scenes. I don't know what he was doing, but the fact is that was your vision. This is what it is. To what degree do you now step back and let others lead? Well, be clear about that event. I had something to do with it, but I was certainly not leading that event. I mean, we've got a tremendous staff now, about 10 people full-time year-round at Montclair Film. Tom Hall's our executive director. Uh, Aaron Roche is our director of development. Meredith LaDove runs a managing director. They're really making these events happen. And my role is very different now. My How leadership so? is very different. Well, first of all, I just can't be the guy who's like pushing everybody. First of all, they don't need it. Second of all, they wouldn't put up with me anymore. I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> it's just enough of that. But they, in all seriousness, they don't need it. I, there are things that I can do to help because of the network I've developed over the years, because of relationships I'm lucky enough to have in, in place, friendships. Occasionally I have a good idea, but the execution, like that evening, Stephen Colbert, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, close to 3,000 people at NJ Pack, John Schreiber's beautiful venue. Schreiber's the best, NJ uh, Pack is awesome. But that is a tremendous effort, and it, I thought, was not only 
entertaining and enlightening, but it was flawlessly executed. Raised a few bucks. It raised a few bucks, which is very important for a nonprofit like ours. Yeah, to say the least. Great event, but really the team is making it happen. You're listening and watching Bob Feinberg, founder and chairman of the board of Montclair Film and also vice president, general counsel, and secretary of WNET. New York Public Media. Mary, jump in. Absolutely. I'm just sitting here in awe just because hearing the discussion of how you just had this idea, see that you planted it, and then seeing and hearing and watching how it's evolved. How do you find that you get people to buy into your vision and people to follow? And I, I never like to use the word follow. I don't know. It sounds like you're a in. follower, but join in. Thank they buy you. In. Thank you very much. So how do you get people to join in and believe in that vision? Um, do you find that to be challenging when you believe so much in what you're trying to build? Well, that's a really good question. I think one answer, which is sort of obvious, is that success breeds success. (laughs) And um, my mother-in-law says that a lot, and she's right. I mean, we've developed tremendous momentum thanks to the people who have gotten involved, the things that we've been able to do really from day one. And there are lots of different ways to measure success for a nonprofit. You can measure success whether you're uh, operating at a surplus or not. And we've, you know, knock on wood, operated at a surplus, small surplus, but a surplus every year. So we haven't had those sort of scary financial uh, challenges. Which many nonprofits have. Well, yeah. And these are challenging times for for lots of nonprofits. And they certainly were when we, we started in 2009, really when the economy was reeling. Wow, I forgot. Uh, I just It just hit me when. Right. You know, so we, we formed the organization right at the beginning of 2010 and started building a board and started raising money. And it was the economic downturn that spurred on the creation of the organization because we saw so many of the arts and education nonprofits in Montclair and the greater northern New Jersey area either scaling back right. or disappearing entirely. So we thought you know, we should step in, we should do something. And that's, that was one of the ways that the organization was born. And we've worked really hard and we've had some great contributors and we've been really lucky. And as a result, there's been great momentum. And there, there are tons of ideas. People come to us with ideas really every day. Somebody's got some new suggestion. Some of them are great. Some of them are achievable. Some of them aren't. But it's, it's that kind of collaboration that helps. But it really, a lot of it just comes out of a great momentum that we've built up and we've been able to maintain. Bob, we've talked a lot on lessons in leadership about how people in very high pressured leadership situations have to try to uh, manage their professional life and their personal life. Now, your son, James, happens to be with you today. I'm curious about this. Family is very important. You and I have had these conversations off air, if you will. And how the heck do you manage I'm not going to say lead, manage the or the balancing. There's a great book we talk about a lot off, off balance, which says work-life balance doesn't exist. It's just <laughs> it's just trying to figure out how the heck to keep it all together. How do you do that and how important is your wife Maggie and all that? Well, listen, your family's the most important thing, right? And one of the great things for me about the film festival is that it's really been something that my family's been able to be involved in with you me. You integrate it. Absolutely. There was a time early on when my kids were little 
this goes back, you know, 10, 12 years ago where I, I would sort of joke around and say, like, what I really want to do is start a hardware store. I mean, that, <laughs> would, that would really be funny to start a hardware store, a little neighborhood hardware store. You could go in. You know, I like to put things on the shelf neatly and I like that kind of stuff. And then it was, well, we're going to are we going to start a hardware store? Or are we going to start a film festival? And so all kidding aside, we the film festival was really a family effort. We sh I remember shooting a, a promo video early on with Johnson Video that my kids were involved in. And my son, James, who's now a senior in college, created the first website because what do I know about creating websites? Right. Right? You need a teenager to, to create a website. So, yeah, you really do integrate it. And these days, I think Maggie, sometimes she goes to these Your events wife. somewhat grudgingly, but she still goes. And the, James came home from school for the Colbert event the other night. So it's still a fun rallying point for the, for the family. But you work to keep it, again, the word, the word balance is such an odd expression. We are talking to Ira Robbins, the, the CEO of Valley. Mm -hmm. He's like, there's no balance. There's no balance. And even integration doesn't feel right. We're always trying to struggle. That'll be your next book is really how do you find, I, I guess it is integration. It's really challenging to do that. Well, yeah. you know, you guys know, and you're both this type, you know the expression, right? You need to get something done, ask a busy person to get it done for you. And I'm always, I'm always amazed at that. I mean, we're, Maggie and I are now involved in helping launch a theater nonprofit in Montclair. Called what, the, in your spare time? Called, called the Montclair Theater Project. The Montclair Theater Project, go ahead. And we're producing original and classic works of theater. The first one uh, is gonna be something called the Oldenburg Suite. That's a sung through musical. I, I don't know when this will air, but it's a musical that's going to run for two nights at, at the Cali School of Music. This is going to air uh, in January, so go in, ahead. In, this will be January 3rd and 4th. It's a musical with a book and lyrics by James Feinberg, my son. The musical was performed... You, excuse me, James, do you, do you think you're going to get these plugs? <laughs> this is awesome. So James did the... James wrote the book and lyrics. It's about... Wow. Uh, it's an amazing fact-based uh, musical about the pop artist Klaus Oldenburg uh, from the 70s and 80s, uh, and his brother Richard, who at the time was the uh, artistic director of the Museum of Modern Art, of MoMA, mm. uh, in New York City. And they were hanging around with people like Andy Warhol, uh, going to parties, launching launching careers, and it's about sort of their lives. Um, it, uh, it premiered this summer as a selection in something called the New York Musical Festival, um, and it uh, not only premiered there, but it won the Best of Fest award. So when we started, when this group of people in Montclair started thinking about um, launching uh, a nonprofit to help promote theater, we thought, what a great, uh, what a great way to start because we really want to promote actors, musicians, writers, composers from hmm. Montclair and around Montclair. And we have a cast of uh, ten people. Uh, almost half of them are graduates of Montclair High School, the School of Visual Performing Arts, or the, the, uh, the theater program at Montclair State University. Um, so um, another great endeavor, but, you know, so busy people. That's right. I've got to ask, things. though, where, where did this interest in art come from? Because now you're talking about the Montclair film, now the Montclair Remember, theater. Remember, Bob went to law school. That's what I'm wondering. <laughs> I'm not, like, there's not many not lawyers that I know. So does your legal, ask your it's, question, because then I'm curious That's my question. About, where, you know, there's not many lawyers that I know that are that into the arts that would go, in addition to your busy, you know, nine to five day job that you're doing all this Trust other me, stuff. Trust me, we do a lot of training in the, in the legal field, leadership development. <laughs> yeah. I don't think many of them are into the arts. Where's well, the interest of the arts? come from at so, least they're not creating organizations i'm going to say that i think listen 
I, I'll put in a very quick ra uh, a, a quick recommendation, uh, what have you, for, for lawyers. A lot of lawyers are very creative people. A lot of them aren't, but a lot of lawyers are very creative people. And I've been very lucky uh, to be able to sort of ply my trade as a lawyer uh, at a place like Channel 13, like Yeah, yeah talk about that. So, so that's, a, the, you know, all of my clients uh, at WNET are creative people. They're creating uh they're creating television programs, podcasts. To disclose, uh, we're one of them. Go ahead. Uh, and uh, and that I find really rewarding, frankly. That's that it just it it fits with whatever side of the brain works for me um, to be able to be the lawyer for creative people and to be around creative people and to help them sort of think through the issues that you have to you have to address when you're creating content in in 2019. One quick follow-up on this. In all seriousness, we, we actually have a leadership academy at uh, at Gibbons. It's not, nothing to hide. It's where we do one of the leadership academies. We teach uh, their high-potential lawyers to be better leaders, mm -hmm. right? Not to be better, not about the law, because that's not what we do. The reason I'm mentioning this is because I'm curious, to what degree, Bob, do you feel that your legal background, your, your, your training not only in law school but being a lawyer, has helped you be the best leader you can be? Well, I think it's it's helped tremendously, really. I mean, one of the things that always appealed to me about being a lawyer, and, and earlier in my career, I, I was I was a litigator. I was a I was a I was a criminal prosecutor in the U.S. Attorney's Office, and I, before that, I I practiced. Uh, I've always thought that being a litigator um, is a is a great opportunity to get dropped into lots of very different situations, different businesses, different. Uh, different interactions among between people, and it requires you to sort of learn a new field uh, every time you have a new client, mm. um, and that's exciting because you're not doing the same thing over and over again. Uh, and it helps you, or it gives you the opportunity to help people who might not, you know, as they say, think like a lawyer. You can you can bring that that rigor um, and that uh, uh, that approach, that sort of ordered thoughtful, linear approach to things. And that's, and I like doing that. I mean, I'm good. I think I'm, I'm good at that after lots of years of practicing law, but I really do like, like plying that trade in a creative environment. Last question for Bob Feinberg, the uh, founder and chairman of the board, Montclair Film, and also vice president, general counsel and secretary, WNET, uh, New York Public Media. And to disclose again, we have been We've collaborated with and been there. I don't know whether the term is clients or whatever. We wouldn't be able to do what we do on public broadcasting with our program if it were not for WNET and NJTV and Bob and his team and, and, and the CEO there, Neil Shapiro. But that being said, last question. We're big fans of uh, being self-aware and knowing what your strengths are as a leader and also your opportunities to be better. One area you need to get better as a leader is, as we wrap up, one area I need to get better. Yes, I know. What, don't tell me what mine are. I already know. <laughs> Mary tells me every day. So go ahead. Uh, I need to develop a better uh, store of patience because I get impatient with people. I get impatient with with processes. I Stop get impatient. Stop stink eye over there, Mary Gamble. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I think I I had my, <laughs> I've had people say to me, "Look, you're." You know, you need to um, uh, you need you need to not let people know when you think they're not doing what they should be doing. You need to find better ways to do that. And that, that I consider I, this a great 
leadership attributes. <laughs> <laughs> you really working on that? Why? I'm, wor I'm working on it. Right, how many times have I said to you, count to 10 before you uh, say what Mary, you're going right. to say? Like, Mary, I'm going to do this right, right now. She goes, yeah, no, or the 24 hour rule. Oh, she's like 24 always. hours. Could right. you see how important this is tomorrow? I'm sorry for not being on the mic. See, what? Mary, we have to deal with this right now. No, Mary's, Mary's Listen, right. Listen, Mary's, right. no, Mary's right. Bob, you talked about a sense of urgency. I agree. <laughs> I also believe in a sense of panic. No, <laughs> A well-developed sense of panic, yeah. This has been Bob Feinberg, the founder and chairman of the board of a terrific organization. By the way, tell everyone the website so they can go, not just find out what's going on, but also contribute because everybody Montclair needs money. MontclairFilm.org. Okay, and the film festival is coming up when? May 1st through 10th of 2020. You want to talk about growth? First year, Montclair Film Festival had how many films? It was about 45 films over five days. And in, in May of 2020, it'll be about 180 films over 10 days. Awesome. And also, Bob is, as I said, the Vice President General Counsel and Secretary WNET over in New York. Bob, thank you for joining us on Lessons in Leadership. Thank you, This was great. Thank you. See, Mary, you always think you know what's going to happen, and we don't. That's why we have good guests. I'm Steve Adubato. That's Mary Gamba. We'll be right back right after this. Lessons in Leadership. This is Mary Gamba. If you want more leadership tips and tools, log on to stand-deliver.com. That's stand-deliver.com. This edition of Lessons in Leadership is brought to you by New Jersey Resources and Prager Metis, your world worth more. Welcome back to Lessons in Leadership. I'm Steve Adubato with Mary Gamba, and I want to thank our good friend Bob Feinberg from Montclair Film, uh, and also from over at WNET and JTV. You're, again, I, same question I always ask you, but after we have someone come in who's such a strong leader, takeaways. The having the ability, and, and I know we always say this, and having that ability to be a leader to have a vision and to get people to follow you is just one of the greatest assets of a leader. And it's funny because when we started the project doing lessons in leadership, I really didn't know how many different perspectives we would hear on leadership. Do you think leadership. we run out of stuff after a couple of shows? I did. I, I really you did. did. And I, I think did. we're on like episode 85 now. I don't know, right. JP, Brian, it's around there. Mm -hmm. And every time there's a new lesson, a new takeaway. So I almost feel like um, we should pay our guests to be here rather than us getting paid to don't be here. Get a, don't, that's, a, that's an absurd <laughs> idea. And uh, just listening to Bob, really... You know, we can't afford that. We can't afford that, no. Uh, listening to Bob talk about how, as you had said, one day you were just sitting there, you had this idea. No, no, he, he, he I'm had telling you, he yeah. had, and he, when we said, well, I mentioned John Servideo and that John's the general manager of uh, NJTV and a good friend of Bob's, and we all live in Montclair, and Bob's like, start talking about the film festival, and again, because we work together in public television, I'm just listening and going, yeah, okay, whatever you need, and I didn't even know what that... How many people have an idea like that but and he had it never a goes conversations anywhere? like that. I was just one person. Right. He had to go sell that. It was at night, 8 o'clock at night, after he did his work over in New York in public broadcasting. Do you realize how many dinners he had, how many breakfasts he had, how many lunches, how many late-night conversations? Yep. Here's the one I'm trying to get at, and I watched my dad in 1970 create a not-for-profit organization, the Northward Center, where, as we said, on a different edition of Lessons in Leadership, my sister Michelle is the CEO at the mm -hmm. Northward Center there, celebrating their 50th anniversary. Why is this relevant? Because I remember being a little kid. I remember being a little kid, and my dad was just building this thing yeah. 
And I was like, what is he doing? Why is he never He's around? building relationships. That's what he's doing. And leadership all comes down to building relationships with others. And it could be something as big as Montclair Film. It could be something a lot smaller. It could be a fundraiser. It could be anything. And the ability to build relationships, you never know when you're going to need someone, something to just really help you to put something together like that. And there's another part to that. And Mary and I are students of relationship building which is why we thank our sponsors, such Absolutely. as? Absolutely, definitely. Uh, Prager Metis, New Jersey Resources, Investors Bank, uh, Gibbons, uh, we talked about them before. Uh, who else am I missing? MD Advantage, RWJ Barnabas Health. So we just have a lot of great people that make this possible. That being said, and also the folks at Hackensack Meridian Health and St. Joseph's Health. Okay, why do we say all this? Because, and I said I'd come back to this later. Mm -hmm. Blind spots? All right. So with, with, with Bob Feinberg, I know when he was starting to raise money for Montclair Film or Montclair Film Festival, how hard that was. Going into their 10th year, it's no less challenging in an environment where everyone's looking to uh, secure resources. And I remember he convinced the folks at Investors, right, to come on board, and Kevin Cummings, the CEO, and which is one of their major sponsors, but also they've got the building where they have Montclair Film, it's the Investors building with them. Why am I saying all this? Because sometimes people become very transactional, meaning they think leadership is about making deals. Okay, yeah, it is. But you ever see people who make a deal, they celebrate, they check off the box as if they're done. That relationship, just like, I don't want to be corny here, but like a, a plant or whatever, I, I don't know how to garden anything, but you have to keep nurturing that thing because if you go back at the last minute you go hey yeah we need your money again mm -hmm. hey yeah we need something from you again i'd like to have a transaction with you again right it's the it, reaction of most people most people are going to be turned off as they should be if they were good enough to be brought to the table in the beginning because you thought you saw something in them and they'd want a partner they should definitely be uh, with it side by side for the rest of the relationship what does this have to do with leadership because most people are moving forward a million miles an hour and and we talked about the hub and spokes. You're the hub, and all these spokes are your key relationships. And yep. st stakeholders is a weird term. It's like who it matters is. in your world. Oh, and I have I have a prop. I have a prop. What's my your prop, prop? My prop went away. I had a handwritten note, and we were talking about this earlier. Is so it from? It is from uh, uh, our friend. Yep, from Bernie. And so we had a, a call. And oh, this is this was the major union leader that we yes, write. Yes, and, and it could be from anyone. But I received a handwritten note. You did as well. Same guy simply thanking us for taking the time for a call. <laughs> and, and I was shocked. I will remember that. I mean, we get handwritten notes. It's like a thank you for maybe having somebody as a guest on the show or yes. if you send them a holiday basket. But just literally a thank you, a handwritten note, that is the core of relationship building. That's what we're talking about because I will remember that. I will remember. And a lot of times people say you're not going to remember what somebody said, but you're going to remember how they made you feel. I will always remember that Bernie made me feel like I was important enough for him to take the time out of whatever else he was doing to write a handwritten note. It's simple, so basic, but so powerful. You know, to Mary's point, uh, we're in the business, and Bob Feinberg is, is the leader of a not-for-profit at Montclair Film and also chief counsel over in New York at WNET. So both are not, it's a nonprofit as well, and was a key person with Neil Shapiro, who was the leader behind the movement to create NJTV, which is uh, owned by WNET. Why do I say all this? Because we're all in the business of raising money, right? We're all in the business of bringing in sponsors slash underwriters. Why is this relevant? The other day, 
we got a major renewal of a sponsorship. And I remember, because you work so hard at, and you're going to say, why are we doing so much about fundraising? Here's the connection to leadership that I see. Um, so we were working really hard, and we got an email the other day that one of those major sponsors came back. And it was a big amount of money, and you and I both know how much that pays for things, right? And I thought, wow, that's great. And I literally went to this little, you know, my whiteboard that I have mm -hmm. with the names of all the yeah, folks. Yeah, dry erase board. Yeah, mm -hmm. and our daughter Olivia helps me circle them, and she thinks it's our money. I tried to explain we're a nonprofit. It's not mm -hmm. our money. And the day was going on. There's a point to this. And I hadn't thanked the chief executive officer of that organization who was key in helping in making the decision to renew their sponsorship. And I was about to check it off and say, oh, well, listen, she knows how much we appreciate it. And I'm not saying, I'm not patting myself on the back, but at the last minute, I just wrote a little email and I said, listen, I want you to know how much we appreciate you having confidence in us. We couldn't do what we do without you. Every word I said I meant, not a handwritten note, but an email. I think it mattered to her. And it also matters going in the opposite way. It works with your team. So say, for example, if you have a larger team or even a smaller team, you need to make sure that you're also connecting and building those relationships with the people on your team. Or if not, those could just as quickly wilt to use the garden analogy. I, I don't garden either. Well, they already know what devil's advocate. Right. She knows she did a good job. He knows he did a good job. Why am I telling them? People need to hear it. People need to have those touch points and they need to, and it doesn't always have to be thank you or boy or just, hey, I realized that you went out of your way to do X, Y, Z and I really appreciate it. Or by you, and you do this with me often, you'll be like, I just want to let you know that when you leave a seminar late at night, I want to let you know that what you did to prepare to prepare me for Which, the seminar. Which, by the way, I don't really know what you did. Right, to exactly. I just exactly. know it looks like a lot. But that's good because that helps me know that I'm doing something right because you shouldn't know all that goes into making the sausage, as we talk about. You don't want to know what goes into making the sausage. But if you make it right, it's sure going to taste good at the end of the day. Okay, and that's again, what it boils real quick, we have about a minute or so left. What about all those leaders listening or those in leadership positions who say, stop, people aren't that needy. They don't oh, everybody. Really uh, that, I mean, leadership is all, I mean, you need to accept that people are needy. People want people. It's human nature. People want to, whether it's a, a handshake, a pat on the back, words, people need to have Same that. Same thing with our kids. Yeah. We're yeah. proud of you. Yeah, absolutely. We know you did your best. And that's all you need to say. Those words, I'm proud of you. I love you. If there's nothing else that you say to your kids and at work saying, thank you. That's it. It's not complicated. In that spirit, let's uh, thank the folks who carry yeah. the uh, Lessons in Leadership program. That starts with our great friends, AM970, uh, Jerry, Jerry mm -hmm. Crowley, and Laura. And Laura. Laura Schaefer, Schaefer, right? They're terrific at AM970. You can listen to us every weekend over there, also on their website as well at AM970. The folks over at Fios On Demand at uh, ROI. And Jay at the New Jersey Business and Industry Association, also at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. Right, Brian? Yeah, we're going there, too. And we also have to make sure we thank the folks at East Main Media Studio. We would not, no way we could do this without them. Yeah, absolutely. Brian, do we say thank you enough? You did a pretty good job. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. We appreciate it. So thank it, you. It, one more doesn't hurt. No. Thank that you. being said, uh, Mariana, thank you for helping to make this possible. And also one more quick time to our sponsors yeah, over absolutely. at Prager Medicine, a great, great accounting firm over at uh, Larry Downs, the, the previous CEO, the, the CEO, the past CEO over at New Jersey Resources, also at Valley, at Gibbons, at Hackensack Meridian Health, uh, New Jersey Resources, as I said, uh, local 825 operating 
engineers, MD Advantage, St. Joseph's, RWJ Barnabas Health. Thank you. Mary, you want to say anything else? No, thank you. Thank you, Steve. I appreciate you. That was, I was just kind of looking for that. We'll catch you next time. Thanks for <laughs> lessons in leadership, but you know that because it's behind me. Thanks. This is Mary Gamba. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with State of Affairs with Steve Adubato, where we look at the most pressing issues facing the state of New Jersey. This edition of Lessons in Leadership is brought to you by New Jersey Resources and Prager Metis, your world worth more. Hi, I'm Joel Bloom, president of New Jersey Institute of Technology. At NGIT, we believe that not only our students, but all citizens need to be informed about the issues facing higher education. As New Jersey Science and Technology University, NGIT is proud to support the important programming produced by the Caucus Educational Corporation and their partners in public television. Funding for this edition of State of Affairs with Steve Adubato has been provided by Holy Name Medical Center. This place is different. New Jersey Resources. NJIT, New Jersey Institute of Technology. Horizon Blue Cross Blue Shield of New Jersey. The New Jersey Education Association. International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 825, and by Community Food Bank of New Jersey. Promotional support provided by Insider NJ, and by NJ Advance Media. This is State of Affairs. I'm Steve Adubato. We're coming to you from beautiful Newark, New Jersey, NJTV Studios. Camilla Valdez is prosecutor and Passaic County, born and raised where? Born in the Bronx, raised in Newark. See that, I always like to say you're from Newark. I'm from Newark, but I was born in the Bronx. Just checking. Okay. Um, I gotta tell you, you and I have had so many conversations mm -hmm. off air, on air, yes. about a whole range of issues. Right before we got in the air, I said gun violence, gang violence in your uh, county and also in the state. Are they the same thing? Well, no, not if you look at the numbers. If you look at our numbers, our homicide numbers tend to stay within 20 to 22 or so a year. Our shootings, however, which to me is a greater indicator of the violence problem, are always higher. And that's really the number that we look at. Because if you have a victim that survived, it could be that St. Joe's did the awesome job that it always does. We're talking about St. Joseph's uh, Healthcare, um, St. Joe's Hospital in. Um, Patterson, let me ask you this. It, people connect Passaic County. That's Patterson. It's more than that. It's more than that. It's Wayne. It's Clifton. It's our suburban areas. It's our it's rural Passaic areas. It's Passaic City. It's Passaic City. Um, it's such a diverse county. So many things going on. Cities, suburbs, rural areas. We, we see it all. It's interesting. People use the word prosecutor. Um, they don't know exactly what it means. Mm -hmm. To your friends and family, how do you describe the job? I talk to them about it in the context of service, public service, because prosecutors, good prosecutors, are not just looking to put people in jail. They're looking to remedy problems. They're looking to serve. They're looking to be receptive and responsive to what's happening with communities. So prosecutors are a jack of all trades. We're trying mm -hmm. to keep people safe. That's the bottom line. You know, um, it's interesting. You've got an interest. I love your sense of humor, Thank particularly you. when you're dealing with such issues, yes. challenging issues. Um, you talked about how you came into this job. Mm -hmm. You know, I saw a piece of video. I don't know, maybe you were mm -hmm. speaking somewhere and mm -hmm. you sent me some. Maybe I caught it somewhere <laughs> on social media. I don't know how I saw it. Uh -huh. But you were talking to some folks about how you came into this job. 
Describe the circumstances around that, why that's so interesting. So it's interesting because I was minding my business at the U.S. Attorney's Office, and the opportunity to become Passaic County Prosecutor arose, and I never thought it would happen because at the time I was uh, an assistant U.S. Attorney hired by U.S. Attorney Christie, and the appointing governor at the time was Governor Corzine. So, and I, I'm an independent, so I wasn't really sure that the politics were going to line up. But a wise Latina mentor of mine said to me, these jobs don't come for us, so you should at least try. Because at the time, there had never been a Latina county prosecutor in the state of New Jersey. Never. Never. So in 2009, I said, well, if I don't get it, I still have a job that I absolutely love. And if I do get it, it'll be another opportunity to serve. And so now, 10 years later, here I am. You know, um with a mutual friend, Micheline Davis. You and I have um, been involved in a lot of conversations. One of them, I remember, was on um, women in leadership, mm -hmm. particularly women of color. Yes. What particular responsibility do you feel um, being the first in this role, particularly for others who may be coming up right now yes. and maybe and simply don't see the possibilities? You say what? I say do the work. <clears throat> I say do the work and be very good at the work. And if it's challenging work, look at it as an opportunity to really show the world what you can do. Uh, I have experienced racism here and there during my career. Somebody finds out I'm Dominican, suddenly they're asking me about some Dominican baseball player. I'm like, it's a big country. We don't really all know each other. <laughs> yeah, but, right. But gender bias is something that I experience almost daily, if not weekly, because it's almost as if I can be forgiven for, for being Hispanic, but not forgiven for being a woman and a woman in charge. What does it look like? What it looks like is initially distraction. Initially, it's like, is she smart enough to do this job? Is, does she have the right temperament to do this job? That's what it looks like initially. But when we really get down to brass tacks, we get it done. You're hardcore in that way. Mm. And you know, part of your upbringing here in the city of Newark yes. has... Um, help mold you into who you are and what you are as a leader? How so? Well, I am, and I say, you know, I'm a little bit of boogie down because I was born in the Bronx, but I was raised in Newark, Roberta Clemente Elementary School, Barringer High School, which, by the way, just opened a beautiful law and public safety That's academy. Right. Were you there? Uh, you, you, I was you, absolutely I heard about there. That. I was absolutely Everybody's there. Everybody's talking about in the neighborhood. We're from the same neighborhood. I can say that. Go ahead. I was absolutely there. And so I spoke to those students, and I speak to myself to say, you know, I am from Newark, I was poor, I was Dominican. The expectations for me were maybe finish high school, maybe start working. And so everything that I've gone on to do, that I've been fortunate enough to do, is really just gravy. For the most important people in my life, which were my parents, I was a success when I graduated from Barringer High School. So my career has really been a series of, well, let me see what else I can do, and let me see what else I can do. So when you deal with issues connected to the opioid crisis, yes. how much of that connects you back to where you come from and who you come from as well. Well, I love the fact that we have pivoted in terms of how we deal with addiction. Because I mean, it's everybody's issue. This is just some urban every, minority thing. It's everybody's issue, and we are looking at addicts with compassion and with empathy versus long prison sentences. We're, we're at the age where policy we remember... Policy mistake for a long time? Policy mistake for a long time and not really assessing the damage that it was doing, the damage that it does when people that are nonviolent go away to jail. What does that do to communities? What does that do to families? We are now have pivoted in that direction. And so for me, 
it is very important to be able to talk about policy decisions and what the impact is. And, and how do you study whether what you're doing is effective? Now everything is a study, as it should be. We should not be launching into wholesale policy decisions without really thinking about the outcome on people of color, poor people, women, the LGBTQ community, um, the undocumented, immigrant communities. What is the impact? And I, I am so fortunate and blessed to be able to sit at tables now with, where we're discussing policy issues. With your voice being heard. With my voice being heard. For those who say, Prosecutor Valdez, that just let's be tough with them. Mm -hmm. Let's just be tough. Like, that's a, that's the policy. Yes. You say? Well, there's, there's, a, there's a time and place for everything. And I think that if they don't do what they are supposed to do and follow <clears throat> along with the care and the treatment that's being extended, there will be a time to be tough with them. And there's, but there is that initial, let's see how we can help this person. Let's see mm -hmm. how we can offer treatment that was not available to them before. Real quick, for let you add here. Um, President Trump and the issue of law and order. We haven't seen it in Passaic County. You don't see it. I don't see it because... The ICE stuff, the immigration stuff? You, you I, I have not seen it. Really? And we had a wonderful immigrant integration day recently in the city of Passaic. What was it like? It was fantastic because there were so many government agencies that were there, so many people explaining to immigrants what their rights are, what, what are the systems. Most immigrants come here, most, come here wanting to provide for their children, wanting to work, wanting to drive, wanting to be productive members of society. Sure, there are outliers that are committing heinous crimes and they should be held accountable for their crimes. But by and large, that's not what we're seeing. We have mm -hmm. not seen the ICE raids in Passaic County. I'm not saying that they haven't occurred. They haven't happened in Passaic County. Prosecutor Norman, thank you for joining us. Thank you, you for having North me. proud, Barringer High School proud. Keep doing what you're doing. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thank you. I'm Steve Arbato. We're in Newark, Brick City. Yes. Back after this. To watch more State of Affairs with Steve Arbato, find us online and follow us on social media. This is uh, Kevin Corbett, President and CEO of New Jersey Transit. Good to see you. Thank you, Steve. Um, let's do this. The job, how would you describe it? How many people commute every day, by the way? Oh, uh, we have about 950,000 on a weekday, yeah. Trains, Trains buses. and buses, about two th roughly two-thirds bus, one-third train. You don't need this. Listen, you could watch NJTV News every night and other great broadcasts around, even though none are that good, um, and find out what's going on um, on a regular basis. Top two issues you face at New Jersey Transit are? Top, top two issues, certainly personnel, qualified personnel operations for operations. You don't have enough engineers? That's right. How did that happen? Um, it was, you know, people were saying, oh, did you lose them to other railroads? And there was a little bit of that, but it mainly was we stopped training engineers. So as they retired, we didn't bat, we weren't training the next generation of back. Because? Uh, you know, I don't... Can we call that bad planning? <laughs> Seriously, because you know they're going to retire. Yeah, I, there were people in the organization who knew, the head of our rail ops, those people, they knew and they would request, and the request for uh, training programs and uh, training classes was rejected for budget reasons or other reasons. So the personnel's one. But when it comes to the late trains delayed trains, right? Or the trains doesn't come at all. How, how does that happen? Is that an infrastructure A combination. Thing? The number one cause of, of canceled trains is, is engineers, lack of engineers. But then you get into the next thing down is, is mechanical issues, either on the, uh, particularly we're talking about rail. I mean, buses, we move, sure. you know, 
is another issue, but people judge us a lot by the rail. And there it's the mechanical, either the signal system, catenary problems, which in the Northeast Corridor is Amtrak, actually, we, we run on. What's the deal with Amtrak? Amtrak, uh, they've been any one of uh, anybody's in our field. Over a 20-year period, you have periods where you get some funding and then you're starved, you get these cycles. So Amtrak went through a rough period, and rather than going at war with each other, uh, the last year really spent a lot of time focusing on where can we pull our resources, work together, and we've made a very a lot of progress with Amtrak last year. But they they've got a long, they have a you know that's a hundred year old uh, system mm -hmm. they're operating. You know, it's interesting. You talk to commuters, and by the way, we want to make sure in the future we have one of the commuter advocates here talking about these issues as well. How frustrating is it for you to see how frustrating it is for commuters every day? What is, I'm a commuter every day. I've been commuting on, you know, on the M&E for 20-plus years. What's the M&E? Uh, Morris and Essex, uh, okay. from, from coming in from Morristown. And I've seen where the system started going downhill, and you could you feel it. I think a lot of the frustration is, even over this year, our, our metrics have become significantly better. Long way to go, but we're What really, does that mean, the metrics? You know, our on-time performance, or canceled trains are down. You know, we're, uh, October this last month was, uh, we're down 41, cancellations were 41% than last year. Mm. So, uh, you know, our on-time performance is up 3%, uh, up to almost 92% on time. Far from where we want to be. The uh, rail industry, I would say, is 95% on-time performance to where you want to be, uh, if not higher. But um, the accumulated frustration of a lot of riders, it's, you, you know, there's a, the tree falls on a catenary or there's a suicide or something. As a commuter, you, you realize once in a while these things happen. You sort of, you know, driving it has its downfalls, too. So, but it's a cumulative effect year after year, and you're tired of being, you know, BS. You know, when are we really going to see some results? Where's yeah. the light at the end of the tunnel kind of thing? By the way, if you're listening on the audio side, Kevin Corbett is the president and CEO of New Jersey Transit. Let me ask you this. We, we've done a lot of programming on the American Dream Project, that little initiative out on Route 3, right, in the middle <laughs> A lot of the discussion beyond where they are, where they're not, what, when it's opening, what's opening, et cetera. Is the discussion around the role of New Jersey Transit in moving people in and out of American Dream? Where are we with that, and where are we not? Yeah, I think uh, where we are certainly number one priority for us is taking care of our regular uh, you know, commuters. So our basic service, we have to do that right. But when we look at the economic uh, potential and how do we help the state's economy, it's not transportation for transportation's sake. That gets into how do we make sure that MetLife Stadium is successful, and then how do we help American Dream be successful? Yeah, but okay, so. Um, and we're part of the American dream solution, but not all of it. They have a comprehensive transportation. <sighs> what, after the, the Super Bowl, right? We had that situation with yeah. the Super Bowl, the, yeah. the tons of people yeah, right. that are waiting, waiting, waiting. How much does that adversely, negatively impact the, quote, reputation and brand of New Jersey Transit when a very public crisis like that happens? Oh, I, I think there's no, no doubt it hurts, it hurts the brand, and it does, it's not good for the state's reputation either. You want to host events, you want to be successful. Uh, that was years ago, and there was a whole batch of, you know, uh, post-mortem on that that was, predates me. But the one thing we did when we had a problem with one, uh, one of our uh, uh, programs early uh, last summer, you know, with one, with one concert or one event, uh, we worked with MetLife. People say, okay, what do we need to do to make sure that that doesn't happen again? How do we get it right? Part of it is scheduling trains, just like Airline pilots, right. train pilots, uh, train engineers, a uh, timeout. So we had to make sure that we adjusted the schedule to make sure we had the back end covered for trains, and we more heavily invested in bus up front so that we could really uh, ramp up uh, better. And uh, since then, is, we've had a great experience with MetLife. A couple of things I'm curious about. State funding for New Jersey Transit. We actually had uh, Senator Patrick Dignan. Dignan is the uh, chair of the Senate 
Transportation Committee, as we speak, there's also a select Senate committee, legislative committee, looking at New Jersey Transit that the Senate President, Steve Sweeney, will in fact be chairing. But I'm curious, in that interview with Senator Dignan, who chairs the Transportation Committee, he was very critical of the Christie administration in terms of state dollars dedicated to New Jersey Transit or not. And he said oh, much of the problem is because of a lack of funding over those eight years. Do you buy that argument? Uh, yeah, who to blame is one thing, but there's no doubt that there was over 500 million, half a billion dollars a year in capital funding that was taken away to cover operating expenses. Explain that to folks, capital versus operational funding. So instead of buying rail cars, like if you're, if you're riding a 40-year-old rail car that had the type of the bouncy seats, those were meant to be replaced, you know, five, ten years ago. That's capital. So that 500 million that would have bought new rail cars and new buses was taken away to cover our operating expenses, you know, paying salaries, et cetera. What happens when that happens? Well, just think of, you know, think of Havana with those old American cars, you know, that are from the 1960s and you're trying to keep them running. Uh, that's a, we have 50 year old train engines, 40 year old rail cars. So the breakdowns are more frequent, all those mm. kind of problems. So uh, that really, there's no doubt that one funding more, was critical. Sorry for interrupting you. Sure. Um, President Corbett, I'm curious about this. What the heck is the problem? I'm a, I'm a student of communication. Why it happens, why it doesn't happen, why the message sent doesn't equal message received. Here's the question. Why is it so difficult to communicate to commuters if the train's not coming, when the train's not coming or coming? What the pro What's the problem with communication? Well, you you know, can't blame it, that on Christie. No, and uh, the, the two things. One is communication. If you look at, like an airline pilot, if you're having a problem on the train, your focus is on you know, making sure you fly the plane, not communicating. And what happens on the operational level, they're going to the, you know, on the rail side mainly. Sure. You're going back to the center saying, hey, our, our trains What about the people waiting? Well, that's, that's the issue. By FRA rules, conductors are not allowed to have cell phones. It's a violation of safety rules. So the people on the trains nowadays, can they, can they get more information on the cell phone than the conductors have. So we've Shouldn't been taking... we adjust those regulations based on the way people communicate today, based on social media? I, I, th I think you can do it safely, and we're working with the FRA and the FRA uh, is the Federal Railway Administration right. in Washington. But if you look at uh, Amtrak, for example, they have, you get your ticket, they scan it. But those devices also get communication from headquarters that say this is what's going on ahead of you. So they can, can we do communicate that? that. Yes, we are. We're in the process of doing that. Come back six months from now. Well, we'll Give be us seeing, an update? Yeah, we'll do. This has been Kevin Corbett, President and CEO of New Jersey Transit. We thank you for coming in and answering these and other tough questions. You've been out there on a regular basis. And we wish you, but more importantly, frankly, the folks who rely on New Jersey Transit all the best. Thank you very much, Steve. Thank you. Stay there. I'm Steve Adubato. We'll be right back. To watch more State of Affairs with Steve Adubato, find us online and follow us on social media. We're pleased to be joined by Mike Duhame, Republican strategist and partner at Mercury. Good to see you, Mike. Hi, Steve. How are you? Good. A lot of stuff to talk about. We're taping on the 12th of November. Um, big picture first. We have no idea how this inquiry, this impeachment inquiry, is going to play out. What do you think the biggest challenge facing the president and his White House is right now? I think regardless of the outcome of the impeachment, if there's a vote and if it goes to the Senate, I think this is, it looks bad in terms of the politics of this. It looks like he tried to gain some sort of political advantage through what happened there. So regardless with of Ukraine. the outcome, with and Ukraine, the sorry, with Ukraine and, and the investigation into the Biden family, even if it's not impeachable, it obviously is dominating the headlines. It looks like it was not done necessarily uh, for the country's best interests. And he's certainly not talking about the economy or tax cuts or anything else that might be positive for his campaign. So it's just dominating the news in a way that never 
lets the president get out any type of positive message. Mike, you've managed presidential campaigns um, for Republicans. You've uh, very close to Governor Christie, very um, important advisor. How tough is it for Republicans these days with Trump as the president in terms of if they do disagree or have something they want to say, whether they say it privately, publicly, or not at all? It's very difficult because the president is very popular with the base of the Republican Party, still 80, 90 percent extreme popularity with the base of the party, but at least in New Jersey and many other states in the Northeast, Northeast unpopular with independent voters. So it's very difficult to straddle that line. We saw that last week in the legislative elections in New Jersey. For the first time, really, since Trump became president, the Republicans were able to separate themselves a little bit and have some success, folks like John Bramnick and others, uh, in the mm -hmm. suburbs being able to distinguish themselves a bit from the national party. It's interesting. And we're, by the way, if you're listening on the audio side or our podcast, podcast this is Mike Duhame, longtime Republican strategist, uh, managed statewide national campaigns, and, and the head of Mercury, uh, one of the top agencies in the state. Question about John Bramnick. Yeah. Uh, he's coming in today. Bramnick is the leader of the Republican Party in the Assembly. Moderate, independent thinker. He's been on this set, Mike, mm -hmm. been critical of the president. Yeah. But he's also very critical of Governor Murphy. In his race, which is a, I don't want to get in, in the weeds, our great, great friend Michael Aaron will help break down those, uh, those campaigns a lot better than we do. Independent, moderate Republican in a district like that, Union County, a couple other counties. What does that represent for New Jersey and the nation in terms of the kind of Republican he is? Well, I think it's a good thing for, for him and for Republicans who aren't afraid to be independent-minded, aren't afraid to be centrist. That is a district that Hillary Clinton won by 10 points. Bob Menendez won. Malinowski won it last year for Congress. Tom Governor, Murphy, right? Governor Murphy won it. So that's a district that's been trending Democrat. Has about 10,000 more Democrats and Republicans. So now. how did Bramnick win? Bramnick was, uh, Republicans stuck with Bramnick because he had a very strong fiscal message, very much took on Governor Murphy, Governor Murphy talking about high taxes and, and John Bramnick being the leader in the assembly, pushing back on high taxes, understanding this is a tax-sensitive state. And he also, uh, he also wasn't somebody who just disagreed with the president all the time. He was somebody who, when he thought the president was right, for example, on North Korea, uh, he said he thought the president was right. If he thought the president was wrong on something like gun control, he was able to say, I think the president's wrong. So. Voters in New Jersey, especially in an, in an off-year election, understand the difference between federal mm -hmm. elections and state elections and are willing to listen to the candidates. And he was able to distinguish himself. And obviously, for the most part, independents vote for him and Republicans in large part vote for him. He even got challenged from the right, and the candidates from the right got less than a percentage point of the vote. Yeah. Uh, Governor Phil Murphy at the midpoint of his four-year term. Grade him. Uh, I would say probably incomplete still at this point. I think he's someone What's who he done well? Well, what's he done? Well, he's, he's obviously pushing New Jersey toward a more progressive agenda, which is what he wanted to do. What he's done well is I think he's tapped into national Democrat issues in a way that's helped him stay popular. Um, but he's been unable to work with the legislature. So even though Why he... Why do you think? Well, it's a personal animosity, I think, between himself and, and the Senate president. Although, and hold, leadership. On, hold on, yeah. Mike. You believe beyond policy matters, beyond the fact that the governor wants to increase taxes on millionaires, and right now Senate President Steve Sweeney says it's not the right time. Uh, beyond the fact that they have very different views on how to deal with public employee unions and the pension crisis in the state. You think it's personal on some level? I think at some level. I think you outlined correctly that there's an ideological difference. There definitely Go is. The governor is quite far to the left, and Steve Sweeney and Craig Coughlin have much more centrist caucuses. Yep. But beyond that, there is no trust level between the leadership. And you saw in the past Governor Christie and the Democratic leadership were able to work together on some areas of common interest. Now, there's a lot of places where they disagree, and a lot more uh, difference in the ideology between Governor Christie and Steve Sweeney than 
Steve Sweeney and Governor Murphy, but they were able to come together on issues where they agreed because there was a trust level. There are issues that the leadership in the legislature and the governor agree on where they can't get forward. For example, legalization of marijuana, all three profess they want to do that. I don't think New Jersey is as far left as San Francisco or Seattle, so I think there's pushback from Democrats in that area. But they profess to agree on it, yet they've been unable to do it for two years. I think that's because there's not a trust level of how to move forward. By the way, I should disclose that Mercury is one of the many underwriters of our work in public policy programming in the, at the Caucus Educational Corporation. Let me try this one. You and I have had this conversation offline as well as on the air to some extent. And you and your good friend Julie Roginski write a regular weekly column in... The Star-Ledger. And NJ.com. Yep. One of the themes that you and Julie, who's been with us many times, check out our previous program. She's terrific. You talk about tone and tenor. You talk about the fact that friends, family, I don't know about your family, Mike, but in my family, we're taping this around the holidays. We will not talk politics. We try not to bring Trump up because people have very different views on it. Yep. And I've had longtime friends who I can't talk to because we can't respectfully disagree. Is it just my family? Just my friends? I think the tone and tenor of politics is, is nasty these days, and, and it starts in Washington. It, it's, it's very nasty in Washington, and it is, it's become too personal, and it really shouldn't be. And, and we just talked about Governor Murphy. I have a great deal of respect for Governor Murphy, the fact that he, if he wanted to, could retire and go live a very wonderful, easy life, but he's decided to put his, uh, put his money on the line, put his, his own personality on the line, put his family in, in, the, in the political So why does he have to be demonized? Sorry for interrupting, Mike. We're listening. If you're listening on the Audio Side podcast, Mike Duhame who's a Republican strategist, partner at Mercury, question. So why is it that someone disagrees with Murphy on tax policy or whatever it is, or, or Ocasio-Cortez or Bernie Sanders, whoever, those who are on the left, yeah. why do they have to be demonized well, if they're somehow less than American? I don't think they have to be. But and you I think, don't. Well, I, yes, I, I do not. Many I do. Not. Many do. I, and Including I think we just, the president. We just have to try to, I think all of us in our own way, try to have to conduct ourselves in a way that hopefully leads by example in a way that does that. Like I said, I have, I have great respect for the governor and the legislative leaders and their willingness to do things. I think people are willing to put themselves out, even if I disagree with their policies, I respect them for their willingness to engage, for their desire to make the country or the state a better place. And I think we just have to do the best we can to lead by example. It's a contact sport. It's tough. It doesn't mean we don't say mean and nasty things to each other. But, but we tear each them. other down? Destroy their reputations? I, uh, well, I, I try not, I try not, not to do you. that. That's not you. I vote. What they, you can still be Is that hard for you to be in a party? By the way, Democrats yeah. as well. Yeah. Is it hard for you to be in a party where the president, the leader of the party, let's just say engages a fair amount in this? Yes. I, I, I don't agree with some of the rhetoric. I don't, I don't agree with the demonization of, of individuals or obviously certain classes of people that the president does that. And I think we have to stand up and say that he's wrong uh, when he does that. And I've been unafraid to do that. By the way, check out, uh, to tell folks when they can find the Mike Duhame, Julie Roginski piece. It's every Friday, printed in the Star-Ledger, and usually goes online Friday or Saturday. You enjoy doing that? I love it. It's great fun. And by the way, Mike and Julie don't agree on much, no, <laughs> but they're always don't. civil, respectful, and take the other person's point of view and try to beat it on the merits. And uh, Mike, I thank you for joining us. Thanks, and Steve. Having, as always, a civil conversation. Appreciate it. Thanks there. for having me, Steve. This is State of Affairs. We're coming to you from the NJTV studio here in Newark, New Jersey. Catch you next time. State of Affairs with Steve Adubato is a production of the Caucus Educational Corporation. Funding has been provided by Holy Name Medical Center, New Jersey Resources, NJIT, Horizon Blue Cross Blue Shield of New Jersey, the New Jersey Education Association, International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 825, and by Community Food Bank of New Jersey. 
promotional support provided by Insider NJ and by NJ Advance Media. When it comes to you and your family's health care, transparency is key. At Holy Name Medical Center, we believe in creating an environment where patients can be educated and informed so they can get the most out of their health care. As New Jersey's healthcare industry continues to evolve and change, Holy Name remains committed to providing patients with high quality, accessible, and affordable healthcare. I could feel my lungs fill with oxygen and I got my life back. The sharing network means to me hope, life, and everything. The sharing network was a lifeline to me when I really needed it. We are an organ procurement organization. The core purpose of the New Jersey Sharing Network is to save and enhance lives. To honor those who gave. Pay tribute to those who received. Offer hope to those who continue to wait. And remember the lives lost while waiting. For the gift of life.